HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today's show has been brought to you by our good friends at TechServe. Visit TechServe.com for more information. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday, roughly 12 to 12.45. Joined again this week by Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. Nice. And FYI, I'll have you know that uh, Heritage Radio Network, and I was something about copyright. Is it copyright? Copyright issues. We're moving towards yeah, using. We, we, uh, yeah, we have no issues. We just decided to do this. Yeah, well, I, you know, I just want everyone to know that Jack is working on. Uh, the, some of the music you're listening to while you're waiting for me to show up, right? Is that yeah. true? You're writing the music? Oh, yeah. That's always been mine, yeah. Yeah, nice. Shout out to Jack. Thanks. Uh, but uh, I also, I brought, you know, Jack told me to bring in some of my college bands. So we might hear some of that later, <laughs> some of my college band stuff, since there's no copyright issues with that. And, uh, Jack, I know they're not a sponsor, but can we listen to the Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef song later Whoa, on the show? Whoa, you might have to wait until they sponsor. But oh, come on, really? Yeah, They'll yeah. be back soon. We've got a TechServe commercial for you today. Really? But the, it's a good one. It's the Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef is like the best song. It's my fa- I like sing that jam as I'm walking around the streets. <laughs> I'll tell Brian that. Brian Kenny it's from good. Hearst Ranch. It's good stuff, right? Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. You should have seen the face Nastasia made when, she, uh, when I told her we'd be playing your band today. Oh, was, was it worse than vegan or similar to? Uh, on par. On par with vegan face? No. Yeah. Uh, so uh, another thing, last week when I started the show, I was so out of breath that uh, you could literally hear me gasping for air during the first segment. This time I'm a little more rested because uh, I almost died on the bike ride over, which is part of the reason I was a little later than uh, even normally. Uh, for those of you that, uh, well, everyone who listens to the show knows that Nastasha hates hipsters more than almost anything else on earth besides good weather. And... Um, but you you might not know that Nastasha and I both ride fixed gear bicycles. Now, for those of you that uh, you know are going to cry foul that all, that we're actually secret hipsters, we both ride folding fixed gear bicycles, which are about the least hip bicycles on earth. But uh, today, when I was demon pedaling down the uh, downslope on the uh, on the Williamsburg Bridge, I threw my chain. Ugh. And uh, for those of you, a fixed gear bicycle throwing a chain is a, is a, can be really dangerous because it can lock your back wheel and send you flying off onto the onto the thing. Anyway, luckily I didn't die and I did make it here uh, on time. So, uh, well, no, I mean late, but you know, not dead. I made it not dead. Yeah. Right. Good. Anyway, call your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven. 
800-516-1128. I want to start with, I had two separate comments uh, in the questions today uh, about a new circulator that's on Kickstarter called, uh, what's it called there, Stas? Namiko? Yeah. Namiko? Yeah. Did you know who made Namiko? Uh, we thought. Why didn't you mention this to me? Why, you, you knew this and you never mentioned it to me? You knew he was making the circulator? I read it this morning. Anyway, so I, I went on the... <laughs> I go on the thing, and someone's like, hey, look at this circulator. And I, and I look at it, and it's like one of the creators is, is bam. First of all, Weepop, if you're out there, Weepop. Uh, Weepop, Weepop slash bam soupy pot uh, is, is one of our former interns, worked with us at the FCI. We love Weepop. Weepop's good business. So uh, Weepop, whose name is Weepop, which is the greatest name on all to- of all times, decides that he needs a nickname and goes by bam, which is not even – Partially as cool as Weepop, true or false? Right. Yeah? Anyway, so uh, Weepop is out there making a circulator, and two separate people, two separate non-Weepop people, have uh, written to see what I think about it. And you go, it's Namico, you can look for it on Kickstarter. He, they need an extra, I think, $40,000 in the next, how many? Like 14 days or something like yeah, that? Yeah. Anyway, they need another, uh, like $50,000. They got 160000 or so out of 200000 that they need uh, to get their Kickstarter money. Uh, but he's designed this uh, this immersion circulator that looks a little bit like a shower head. It looks kind of like a Wee Pop design, right? Uh, it's got one knob. Uh, what is? It? Do, can you find out what the price is supposed to be? Okay. Yeah, find out what the price is supposed to be. Uh, my one comment on it, uh, as opposed to the ones that I use, uh, it's you know it's a little bit less powerful. It's 750 watts instead of a thousand, but it's made for uh, home people. And good luck to good luck to Wee Pop, right? Yeah, yeah. Good luck. I mean, I love myself some Wee Pop, you know. Uh, I wish that instead of coming out with a circulator, he would make some of the food products I want him to make, like Wee Popsicles, Wee Popcorn, you know, it, right? I mean, wouldn't that be great? You wouldn't want that? I like that he's doing this. Well, yeah, he, but can he do both? Can't he have Wee Popcorn? It's pretty amazing that he came up with this so quickly. Well, it's a rapid product. It doesn't, I don't think they, it's not in production yet. Still. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a ra- rapid. It's a, you know, he has, I think, rapid prototyping work on it. And Wee Pop, aside from going to school for culinary, uh, went to school uh, as an industrial designer, currently living in Bangkok, and I thought doing tr- like trading, like stock trading. Yeah. Last time we spoke to him, he was doing stock trading. We pop, man of man of many pops. We pop, love we pop. Okay, uh, so that, um, that's all I'm going to say about Namiko right now, right? Mm-hmm. So that's both questions I answered. Mm-hmm. What, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. I suppose this is really a food issue rather than a cooking issue, uh, but I was curious to hear your opinion on the prospective large soda ban in New York. Uh, it seems Dave is a bit of a bubble addict, and while I know this might be more of a political issue, I figure it couldn't hurt to ask Pat. Uh, well, listen, Pat. Uh, and anyone else out there, you are welcome to ask us uh, food and we, uh, issues as opposed to cooking issues. And uh, we have no problem uh, making pronouncements or uh, getting political, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, – oh, and by the way, what we're talking about here is uh, Bloomberg has proposed a ban on selling sodas, sugarful sodas, uh, larger than 16 ounces. So in New York City, 20-ounce uh, soda bottles would be illegal. Or to sell uh, sugarful ones, you could buy sugarless ones, uh, and uh, like big gulp. Well, heck, no, big gulps. I think are, are still legal. Right? There's some sort of weird thing. Like certain venues can sell it, like convenience. Anyway, there's there's all these kind of weird things, but restaurants wouldn't be able to sell sodas larger than uh, 16 ounce. And the, the theory behind it is that uh, it, 
you know, their feeling is, is that sodas are empty calories, a term which I detest. I detest the word empty calorie almost as much as I detest the word junk food. Uh, and uh, because I think it's stupid, there's no, there's no foods that are inherently evil. There are bad habits, right? There's no such thing as food that's inherently evil unless you add li- literal poison to it. Or somehow you're destroying the earth actively by eating it, you know, like on purpose, like, you know, I don't know, or like, you know, that you're told that eating this piece of food will cause someone else to suffer in another country on purpose. I mean, like, there's no literally, very few literally junk bad foods, just bad habits. Anyway, so rather than trying to change people's habits, right, rather than through education and habit changing, uh, they want to stop New York City uh, residents from consuming calories in the form of soda by literally limiting what can be sold. I um, think it's dumb. Uh, what do you think, Nasasha? Have you thought about it at all? No. I mean, what do you think, Wait, though? to be clear, though, it's, this is sugar sodas, not just carbonation, right? Yeah, but they're not going to... In other words, I can go... Uh, correct. I mean, it's not anti-carbonation. Okay. It's, it's basically trying to make a stab against the rise what in about, diabetes here here and across the country. What about non-carbonated sugary drinks? Is that- uh, I, I'm not sure. I, I know that juices are exempt, which are extremely hmm. high in calories. I know that, like, you know, your 8,000-quart milk uh, beverage from Starbucks is exempt. You know, that has like 50,000 pumps of syrup in it and, you know, has a billion and a half calories that, that they call a coffee but is an, actually a jug of milk. Like that one is, is exempt. Um, you know, to, to be fair to the people who are thinking about it, there are a lot – I mean, people do consume a lot of soda and people are fat and people do have diabetes. You know what I mean? On the other hand, uh, I think this is an incredibly – poor way about uh, you know of tr- of trying to fix it. It's 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 on the order of you know I don't know it, it you know how they say you, people are just treating symptoms rather than causes. They're just treating a, like a simple symptom rather than rather than uh, you know any sort of the of the root root causes. The, the problem is is that uh, people's dietary habits in general are bad, and I think the reason why our dietary habits in general are bad is because we have this demented idea about food anyway that there's these such things as good foods you know or like like junk food versus like food that 's really good for you, and then people all of, you know people feel that well i 'm not eating healthy anyway, so i 'm going to go completely ape shit and then, and then they drink like eighty five quarts of uh, of soda and go and go horrible instead of just having everyone try to meet in the middle a sensible diet you know like you don 't try try to be some you know ascetic vegan monk who only eats like you know half of a vegetable once every three days and consider that healthy, which i don 't find that healthy right or versus some Someone who pounds 85 Big Macs a day, I don't consider that healthy either. You know what I mean? Like, neither of those is healthy. Healthy is meeting in the middle. And I think, uh, you know, the way to get us to start thinking that way isn't to put a ban on something, i.e. to make it more – when you put a ban on something like that, you're basically making it more enticing to people. You're saying, oh, you can't have this. It's forbidden. So it must be good and fun and awesome. You know what I mean? I think the way to do it is to change the education, uh, change the way we think about food in general, stop thinking about uh, the, the, you know, what, you know, foods as being inherently healthy and unhealthy. Think of habits as being healthy or unhealthy. That's my, my feeling on it. I think this is an incredibly uh, poor way to go about legislating health. I think we shouldn't be legislating dietary habits. I think it's not the government's business in general to be le- legislating my dietary habits. Um, that's just my feeling. you have any thoughts now that you've heard me spew about it? I agree with you. What do you think, Jack? Uh, I think it's, I think any 
effort is better than no effort, but I don't think it's going to go through anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. But in other words, like, I mean, like an effort would be to try and help somebody. This, like, it's also there's these undercurrents. It's like really, they're they're not aiming. They're not aiming this legislation at you know the all the the thin uh, rich. Uh, um, people who go to the gym eight times a day who live in the wealthier parts of New York. Let's be honest about it. That's not who they're facing at, right? Instead, they're trying yet another social legislation against uh, poorer people uh, who, you know, don't have that much money. And they're basically assuming that these people, the only way we can help them is through legislation because clearly, you know, we're, we're not reaching them any other way. I de- I, in general, I detest any sort of social legislation uh, directed at particular socioeconomic groups because it smacks to me of all the stuff that when we hear about it, when it was legislated in the 1800s and the 1900s, we're like, damn, that was racist and crappy. You know what I'm saying? And now when we look at it now, it's like, well, we're just trying to help them be more healthy, right? In 50 years, won't we not look back at it and say, damn, another, you know, another basic uh, racist, uh, you know, socioeconomic put down. You don't think so? But at least it got the conversation started, did it not? What? The, the, we're all talking about soda and portion size now. Well, we're, but, you know, the th- but look, portion size has been addressed by people like Marion Nestle for a, a long time. The question isn't, I mean, portion sizes have definitely gone up. The question is, why does the average uh, lower middle class uh, person in another country who still has the means to buy an absurd amount of soda if they wanted to, right? Why is it that those people aren't buying huge sodas? Why is it that those people aren't getting fat? And why is it that our people are, right? And it's, it's a mental issue. It has, you know, it, like, it's like, oh, the portion sizes got bigger as though it was an elephant that suddenly started growing when, in fact, people are ordering the larger portion sizes. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, it's like, so to try and, to try and staunch the, the tide by saying, well, no, it's, it's, the soda that's, it's, it's the soda that's to blame. It's not the soda that's to blame. It's the fact that we're ordering larger sodas to blame. Burger King clearly is making money by selling larger sodas, and McDonald's cl- is clearly making money by selling larger sodas, right? Which means that uh, the, the way that we purchase things is demented. No? Well, one, one last thing. I had to go to Long Island to see some friends, and it was really late, and the only thing open was Burger King. I hadn't had it in a long time, right? So I, I pick a value meal, and they said, do you want a medium or large? So I'm like, you know, the medium. And that medium drink was enormous. I couldn't even imagine what the large would be. Large is large. Right. You know what I mean, though? Like, to, to, to sell a... You could swim in the large. Yeah, to sell a 32-ounce medium drink is just kind of ridiculous. They should at least regulate that. Well, I don't mean, look, you don't have to drink the whole damn... Do you really... Look, only I... I'm the only person I know who feels obliged to finish everything I order. Right? <laughs> I mean, you're not obliged to... Pound, and first of all, unless you're with Nastasha, that 32-ounce cup has about 22 ounces of ice in it. You know what I mean? That's very true. Do you order your drinks without ice? Yeah. 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 Nice. She says it's because she doesn't like the feeling of ice against her teeth. It's really because she's a psycho and wants every nickel's worth. I know her. She's cheap, (laughs) just like I am. It's true. I really don't like ice in it. But you're using a freaking straw in it anyway. What does it matter if there's ice in it? There's a caller. Okay, call. Listen, by the way, come beat me down on this. Please, beat beat the hell out of me on this. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, James Ray. Uh, um, Love the show. Uh, Listen to it every week. Um... The, uh, I have a question. I have a vacuum reduction rig that I set up. Um, I thought it would be less fussy or persnickety than a uh, rotovap system. Probably is. Um, rotovaps are pretty kind persnickety. Of been, uh, extremely persnickety. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's. Uh, I mean, basically, I had to add a twenty-gallon water reservoir to it to keep the water cool. 
Um, whenever I get, you know, whenever I try to do something that's a little jammy, whenever it gets to a point where it could kind of get where I want it, it starts bumping, even though I've got the pellet in there that's spinning. Um, so do you have any advice that I could use in kind of reining this in? Is there a kind of a best practice that I'm missing out on here? All right, here's, here's, the, here's the deal. One, uh, the, the, the things that you've noted are known, known actual things that some of them are going to be very hard to get around. Um, right. The, it takes if you if you just look at the numbers right of the the heat of fusion which is uh, what what it takes uh, for you to um, when you're melting ice right when you're melting ice for cooling you get the heat of fusion per gram back the heat of va- heat of vaporization is a much higher number uh, so to recondense uh, water that you've boiled off it takes uh, an intensely larger amount of energy than it does to melt the ice. I think it's on the order it's on the order of six times. I forget the exact numbers, but it takes about six kilos of ice, uh, assuming per, like perfect efficiency, to uh, condense one liter of water. Well, actually, I've been able to. I've got kind of something like a wart chiller in there, and I've got it hooked up to another uh, pump that is pumping water through my uh my aspirator so i've got and i've got a high end i've got the really kick uh, a butt aspirator right um so but it's but it's still kind of annoying like the whole thing like i said very fussy like i mean i get every once in a while i get what i want out of it but i kind of have to sit there and fiddle with it um well how much how much ice do you have magnetic stirrer on it that i got before that was digital which was a huge mistake um but yeah, so I yeah. Well, you're, are you chilling your aspirator water though, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, because I, I set up a rig like that with a bunch of aspirators and a flow jet pump, which I might have talked about at one point, like you know, early on in this shit that I got, I stole off of a. Um, a meth lab website, you know, so it's not kind of as nice as the built together aspirators, but it kind of functions the same thing. And I tore through ice in that thing with the pumps, tore through it. Um, yeah. On bumping, um, remember. You're gonna like the, the magnetic stir rod will beat down bubbles after they happen, but the bumping is happening because there aren't any bubbles in it, and all, and you superheat it, and then all of a sudden a large bubble forms and creates a bump. So it's it'll it'll stop frothing like the 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 spinning thing will uh, stop frothing on your initial boil out, or it'll help, but it won't help with bumping. What you need to do to help with bumping is to install a very very fine, and you're gonna as you get more and more of syrup, you're going to need this, a very, 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 very fine tube down into the product with a needle valve and let the minutest amount of air in to initiate bubbles in the product as you're making it. And it's the tiniest, tiniest bleed of air. Uh, and uh, it'll raise your temperature a little bit because you won't be able to suck as good of a vacuum as you would otherwise. Uh, and, right. and But it's going to Radically, it'll strip some flavor out of it, but you've already really reduced it quite a bit anyway, so a lot of the volatiles are gone. But it's the only way to really prevent uh, massive amounts of bumping. In fact, when you're doing um, hardcore reductions with of things like port wine, a Madeira in a Rotovap, uh, or orange juice or apple juice or whatever – when you get down to the last stage in a rotovap, you're constantly needing to bleed small, uh, like hits of air into the system to get it to boil again properly. Instead of like the instead of the distillation dying out and then and then bumping, so you don't even need to continuously let air in. If you just have like a little thing, you can go 
and let a small amount of air in, and it'll initiate some violent but non-bumping boiling uh, a- after that happens. And then once it settles down again, give it a small punch of air again, you'll initiate violent but non-bumping boiling. And that's really the only effective way to get that last little bit of water out. Cool. Okay. Thanks a lot. Hey, no problem. Uh, tell us how it works. All right. I will. Thanks. Right. Cool. Thanks. Um, all right. Well, I guess I spewed enough about the... Uh, uh, about the this the soda ban and uh, whatnot. We could talk more about it later. I look, I encourage anyone to call and beat our faces in for this. But uh, you know, do it, do it. Anyway, let's go to break. Seltzer, been in my fridge so long. Seems that partial pressures made you taste all wrong. Hey, Seltzer, think I'll add a lemon. Make you taste much better. Why don't you ID that track for us, Dave? That is, uh, that is, that is Seltzer, a uh, track that uh, one of my college bands, Bluto, did. I'm playing uh, bass. That was 1990, I think. 1990 or 1991. So way back in the day when uh, you know I was playing bass on a daily thing. But the concept of this is that you had a bottle of seltzer in your fridge. And you, you drank portion of it. And then you let it sit there. And it turned to crap. And, and then you th- it tastes horrible. Like semi-flat seltzer tastes horrible. And you think you're going to make it taste better by adding lemon. It's like, who am I fooling? Who am I fooling? This is horrible stuff. Hey, seltzer. Hey, Seltzer. So clear and so cool. Now you taste worse than water. Anyway, that's how, that, that's how the song goes. We could play that more eventually, right? Not today. Oh, yeah. but All the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it contains no curses, unlike some of my other songs. Uh, anywho. So uh, we're going to actually, Nastasha, we're going to have to have another break later so we can play our Tech Serve song. Give me some Tech Serve song, Jack. Just say Tech Serve song. Tech Serve song. Yeah, Tech Serve. Is that yours or someone else? It's not a song. It's actually a commercial me and Joe did. It's, uh, it's great. Yeah, it's awesome. You'll see. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Hi, all. Long-time listener. Love the show. I'm experimenting with making my own sausages and would now like to know how much fat to add uh, to a mixture and what type. First, I do not know how much fat is in the cut of meat I'm working with. I currently use beef chuck, uh, but would like a way of testing any piece of meat. And second, how much fat should there be? I realize it's a taste issue, but uh, how much would you use? And lastly, for religious reasons, I won't use pork. What type of fat is best to use to increase the total fat content? Thanks a lot. Justin in Israel. All right. Well, uh, it is a matter of taste, but there's a lot more fat in sausage than you think. You want anywhere between, uh, I think, 30% fat total content to one-third fat total content, and sometimes even uh, more, right? But that's the range you want to hit, about one-third fat. But you hit the nail on the head, uh, Justin, when you said it's very difficult to know how much uh, fat is in um, a product. Now, 
I consulted my uh, the professional charcuterie series by uh, Marcel Cattenceau et al., which is this lunatic old French series with like these three lunatic old French dudes with the tall like rooster chicken head hats on, like on the front, like you know, surrounded by plates and plates of meat with that weird half French smile. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. That Frenchy half smile thing. Anyway, uh, and uh, you know, they mainly are using uh, pork. Obviously, but uh, they kind of reinforce what, what I was saying, which is you want about one third uh, fat in the mixture. Now, when you're making sausages, the important thing is the fat should be uh, hard, relatively hard, because you don't want it to render into nothingness as the sausage is cooking. That's why when you are using pork, if you're going to supplement the fat that you're using, you typically supplement with um, Back fat, because back fat is hard, it grinds nicely, it doesn't have like a lot of sinews, and you can get it in kind of big chunks. So that's kind of the sine qua non of sausage fats. In beef, um, I would probably, for added beef fat, I would probably use, um, you know, the, the, like the cap of fat that's trimmed off of the outside of a rib, standing rib, you know what I'm talking about? Like I would use something like that that's pretty hard, uh, that's going to withstand kind of, uh, you know, chopping and cooking, and that also tastes good. Uh, some people, I think, use kind of suet, which is the kidney fat, but it's kind of weird and dry, and it renders actually quite well, so I wouldn't use something like that. I think I would stick to the type of fat that you would find uh, on, on the cap of, let's say, a rib roast or something similar. Um, now, uh, I looked up, I found on the, on the interwebs uh, that uh, pork shoulders are approximately uh, 75 to 25, and I think chuck roast, uh, which is I think what you said you were using, I can't remember, roughly similar. So I would supplement with a little bit of fat. If you're using like a really fatty kind of chuck, I would substitute a little fat. But the classic, you know, Mideast fat to use, uh, especially in uh, you know kind of Muslim applications, would be lamb. And in fact, they raise in the Middle East, which I would love to have access to. I've never tasted it. Special fatty lambs that have fat that is used to make delicious sausages and cured meats. In fact, they have a fatty lamb with a fatty lamb tail where they cure just this extremely fat tail and eat it almost like you would eat, I think, like a lardo. But I've never had it. So I, I can't really uh, say anything about it. But I, I would definitely um, – I would subs- I would add some fat to what you're using. Let me see what you, what you said you were using again. Yeah, chuck. So if you're getting really fatty chuck that's untrimmed, I mean I don't really know of a test to test how much fat is in the meat proper. I mean, I guess it's theoretic. Theoretically, you could weigh it and then do a volume situation, figure out the density. But the best thing to do is just look on the interwebs and try and find what the fat content of that cut is. It's really also going to depend on the specific marbling content of the meat. Uh, so it's difficult. If anyone has a test, or I'm gonna, I'll try and look maybe during the week if I have time to figure out a good test and talk about uh, next time. But I would substitute in a good hard fat. If you have a nice fatty piece of chuck, I would assume it's about 25% fat. And you're going to want to add more to get it up to that one-third number. Right? Uh, or use lamb. Or duck fat, I think, works uh, as well. I've made sausages with duck fat because duck fat can be pretty hard sometimes if you get the, the good part. What do you think, Stas? Yeah. Good, it's a good answer? Good, good answer. Good? All right. All right, Justin, good luck with that and give us a, give us a holler back. Uh, okay. Mike writes in, greetings from Taiwan. Love the show. Whenever I download a new episode, it's like an old friend coming to visit. Thanks for all your hard work. That's nice, right? 
here's my question. I am a spice freak. I have traveled a bit through Malaysia and Sri Lanka, lucky, uh, and always head to the spice markets to see what's available. The quality and variety are incredible. I inevitably fill half of my suitcase with spices and then am left wondering how to best keep them in my Taiwanese apartment. Should I keep them chilled in the freezer or refrigerator or will condensation affect the spices much like it does coffee? I already know that buying whole and grinding to order will help maintain quality and increase the longevity of product, but would welcome any other advice. Okay, look. Uh, like everything else in the world, everything depends. Um, things like leaves, spices that are leaves, fresh leaves, right? You can freeze them, but the problem is, is that when you freeze them and thaw them, they're usually damaged by the thaw procedure, and then enzymes in leaves break them and turn brown. This is why, uh, like tender leaf herbs, are very not very good when they're frozen. So those typically, even though they're not the same as fresh, are going to be best kind of lightly dried. Once they're lightly dried, the enzymes aren't going to work anymore. Then you can freeze them. Any case. Uh, the problem with coffee, coffee is very like a dry, dry good. It's going to be ruined, especially due to the kind of the brewing process and what goes on by water and condensation. So you definitely don't want to have coffee go in and out of the freezer because condensation will form. If you are going to do this on an extended basis, purchase a vacuum machine. And even a home vacuum machine is going to be good for this kind of thing. Vacuum the products down so there's not a lot of external moisture in it or oxygen. And then when you freeze it, you're going to have less damage uh, due to freeze-saw cycles in your freezer. The main problem with uh, keeping things in the freezer in terms of quality is freeze-thaw, 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 right? Uh, And so I would say that long-term storage, I mean, I have to buy a lot of my leaf spices like curry leaf and things like that frozen here in New York because that's the only way they come in. Or kefir lime leaves, uh, I I buy them frozen because that's the only way I I can get them. Uh, And you too can store your your products that way. If you need to, I would recommend vacuum packing and getting all of the um, air out. Even if you're going to store them on a shelf, vacuum packing once, even though that vacuum pack is going to get rid of a little bit of the aroma, is going to be a good long-term storage uh, procedure because you're not going to have any spices that might be damaged by oxidation or anything like that, uh, which is going to keep them more intact. Fridge is generally not, meh, meh, fridge, meh. What do you think, Stas? Meh, fridge. Because like stuff can grow in the fridge. If there's if there's water in it, I wouldn't store it in the fridge. If there's not water, you know, it's like, meh, you know? Yeah. No? Anyway. I hope that helps, Mike. Let us know. Uh, let us know what you got there. And, you know, and I generally don't like the home uh, vacuum machines, but I think for that kind of a thing, it's it's probably adequate. Hmm. This is my feeling. Uh, someone call me and tell me I'm an idiot. Uh, you know, I usually am, right? Uh, Michael Natkin from Herbivoracious uh, wrote in and said, uh, "I've got a question for you guys about making cultured butter." At uh, Atera in New York City, Matt Leitner served a washed rind cheese cultured butter. I figured out how to make it at home. It's easy enough. I take one pint, 467 grams of good organic cream, 25 grams of a rind from a funky cheese. I used Cowgirl Creamery Red Hawk. Fancy. Expensive. Uh, mix, let stand room temp till it thickens and the cream tastes funky. Took about 11, 14 hours for me. Refrigerate overnight. Uh, you actually, and it's important to refrigerate overnight. Uh, when you're churning cultured butter, if it's warm, it just it's just a, it's a freaking nightmare getting making butter out of it. Uh, just so you guys know, churn, drain, knead, rinse. Voila. Ah, I would not I would not rinse it. I don't know why you're. Uh, I love the taste of the whey in uh, you know the buttermilk that's in uh, butter. So like when I'm making my butter, I usually under I usually under knead it, and I usually don't rinse it at all. I'll knead it in the thing and then squeeze out just enough to keep it. And I love the taste of it. It will not keep as long, 
Uh, and it's not good for cooking at that point because it's not good for cooking because it's got more water content in it. But as a, something you're going to spread on bread, I love it with a little bit of the extra buttermilk left in. So I wouldn't overneat it and I wouldn't rinse it. That's just my feeling. But that's not his question. His question is, how do I know this is safe? I'm eating it and it tastes great and it seems fine to me, but I'm a little leery about serving it to other folks since I don't really have the knowledge to say that leaving the cream out for 14 hours is okay. Of course, people do it with making creme fraiche as well, but is it safe? Uh, P.S. I took uh, Dave's advice on hitting up Corinne, our knife friends, you know, Salary san for a carbon steel knife and the DMT two-sided diamond sharpening stone. I took a chance on a 70-30 bevel and I'm not finding it too hard to sharpen accurately, though agreed it is more challenging than a traditional Western or a traditional Japanese knife. I'm loving both the knife and the stone and it's easier to have a razor sharp edge every day with this setup. Well, thanks. That's very nice. Um, okay, so the washed rind cheeses, uh, typically the ones I looked up, uh, use a bacteria called Brevibacterium linens. Uh, so if that's going to culture it, if that's going to be what's culturing the, uh, the buttermilk, right, typically that's not what you would have uh, to culture cream. You would use a lactobacillus would be in there to culture cream. Uh, hopefully you're also getting a lactobacillus in there. I looked up. Uh, you know, I looked up the kind of the characteristics of washed wine cheese, rind cheeses, and the Brevibacterium linens is typically has a lower acid, i.e., a higher pH than normally cheeses would of that of that type uh, without that bacteria. So you're talking about a higher pH uh, situation in cultured buttermilk, or in cultured uh, cream rather that you're going to turn into butter. Uh, the safety val- the safety of it um, is is because of the acidity that's being caused by the uh, lactic acid bacteria as it cultures. Um, I looked up some studies in general, and uh, what you want to make sure that nothing is going to be bad is that uh, you want the pH to go lower than 4.6 within uh, about six hours, which is the limit for uh, toxins from um, uh, staph stuff to start growing in it. I wasn't able to find whether or not uh, the Brevibacterium linens has its own sort of way of killing uh, things like staph or listeria or, or, or uh, E. coli or things, things of this nature. I mean, I wouldn't freak out over it. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't flip my lid over it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to – McGee is re- – Harold McGee has researched all this stuff. I need to talk to him anyway to see whether or not we're going to go taste mangoes again this year. Uh, but I'm going to try to remember to hit him up on that because it's it's very uh, it's very interesting uh, question. Uh, anyway, so apparently I don't, I don't know that much about it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm, sorry about that. Uh, okay. Uh, Paul Peterson writes in and uh, says, do I have any thoughts on patented cuts of meat? And he's talking patented cuts of meat, and he's talking about the Vegas strip steak. So why don't we take a break, and we'll come back and talk about the Vegas strip steak. 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Man, I need a new computer. I guess I'm going to have to go to the Apple Store. What? Don't go to the Apple Store. Go to TechServe. What's TechServe? I thought Apple Store was the only choice. No, you're crazy. TechServe is so much better than the Apple Store. They're New York's original and still the best Apple computer, iPod, and iPhone store and repair shop. Plus, the store is really cool. You gotta go check it out. They're located at 119 West 23rd Street. Well, that settles it. I'm, I'm headed to TechServe. TechServe is a proud sponsor of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. For more information, visit TechServe.com. That's T-E-K-S-E-R-V-E.com. What? Go to TechServe. <laughs> I love that. Give me some. Give me some what? What? There you go. There you go. Nice. Nice. Strong. Strong. Uh, okay. Uh, we're remiss. Uh, a cephalopod on Twitter asked us about eight million times and is getting irritated with us for recommendations in Tokyo. Now listen, 
Uh, the sad truth is, is that Nastasha and I didn't get to eat out as much. Who you really want to talk to is Mark Ladner because he spent every day eating out. Now, those of you that read the blog, oh, by the way, there'll be a new blog post up as soon as this is over. I'm just waiting for the YouTube video to load up on Ikejime. And I know I said I wasn't going to write super long posts anymore, but it's a long freaking post on Ikejime. I just couldn't freaking help myself. Anyway, I couldn't help it. So it's coming up as soon as uh, maybe during lunch I can get it up. Anyway, uh, so those of you that read the blog know that uh, that Nastasha and Mark Ladner and I went to Jiro's uh, Sushi, and it was good, but I wouldn't spend the 350 on it. What about you, Stas? Yeah. Yeah. Mark, on the other hand, the next day went to Sushi Sawada and said it was the best sushi he's ever had in his whole freaking life. True or false? It's because I wasn't there. Well, there's that. I mean, so yes, so it was even better because you weren't there. But he said that regardless of the company, that it was the best sushi he'd ever had, right? Right. Right. Um, uh, what did you think of the sushi place at the, at the Sakichi Market, the Iwashi place? I thought it was good. Yeah, good. I thought it was really good. It's a good place. Also fairly well known. That you can see that on our blog actually. And there's a couple comments on the on the cooking issues, uh, saying where that restaurant is. This is uh, and Mark agreed with me too. And normally, I, like, it's hard. For, I don't want to recommend because there are friends and everything. But the 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 Japanese traditional Japanese restaurant, at the Park Hyatt, I thought was pretty good. I ate there twice. Yeah. I thought it was really good. And Mark Ladner from Del Posto time. loved it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and you don't normally think of like you know. Park Hyatt having like a really great, especially Japanese, and it was really good. I thought it was really, what was the name of it? Kokoway or something like that? Uh, no, I don't remember. Look it up. Look, we'll see if we can look it up in time. Um, uh, you know, I highly recommend going to Sakiji in general uh, and just like ch- checking out all the stalls around it and uh, just getting little bites, bites to eat, buying fruit if you have the money, if you have the freaking money to buy fruit at Sakiji. Um, and what else did we eat while we were there that was really. I mean, go go to go to the the chef's district street if you're a cook, mm-hmm. right? What else? Anything? Oh, we went to Murata San's Kaiseki restaurant, the Tokyo version of it, and I spoke to Dave Chang about it. He's like, ah, crap on the Tokyo version. He doesn't give a crap about Tokyo. You have to go to the one in Kyoto. But the presentation was great in the one in in yeah. Tokyo. But you know, I don't, I don't. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Sorry, I'm so late in giving you that information. Okay, uh, Nastasha, Dave, and Jack, I have an odd question. While I was calibrating my circulator, I instinctively changed it to Celsius. Then I thought about it more. Generally, recipes are metric because they're easier to scale, better to control, and more accurate, right? But from 0 to 100 de- uh, degrees C, right, to the 10th, because most circulators are accurate to the 10th, there would be 1,000 gradations. And from 32.0 degrees Fahrenheit to 212 degrees Fahrenheit, there would be 1,800 gradations, meaning a higher degree of accuracy. I switched it regardless because most of the info out there is in Celsius slash metric, but for some reason it seems that imperial measurement might be better in this instance. Am I crazy? Is it so little of a difference it is easier to keep it metric because everything else is in the kitchen? By the way, uh, the homemade circulator I have is running great. Thanks for the great podcast. And then you cut off who wrote it. I don't have who wrote it. Anyway, we'll get it. Uh, so here's the thing. No, you are not crazy. The Fahrenheit, and I've said this a long time, is a uh, like it's a it's a finer gradation. This is why when I'm talking about the temperature outside, I always talk in Fahrenheit because you know it's like oh it's 20 degrees out. It's it's great. What it doesn't make any sense? Like Celsius degrees don't make any sense to me for the climate. Like I like a climate where like you know like zero is really 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 cold and like a hundred is really really hot and 120 is really really hot and minus 20 is really 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 cold. But all those things happen. That's like a wide 
wide range. For climate, I use Fahrenheit. For deep frying, I use Fahrenheit. For baking, I use Fahrenheit, right? Because 375, it's beaten into my head like, like nobody's business. You know what I mean? But for sous vide work, I use Celsius. So I myself am of two minds. The Celsius scaling in temperature doesn't make a difference. And there's no reason why freezing is better thought of as zero versus 32. And there's no reason that boiling is better being thought of uh, as 100 versus 212. There's simply no reason. There's no better or worse with the scales. And uh, there are more gradations without using tenths uh, when you're talking about degrees in Fahrenheit. So, uh, you know, it's really, you know, it's, it's your choice, and I use them both. They're, they're, unlike uh, decimal systems for scaling, there is no advantage to a Celsius. There's no inherent advantage to a Celsius degree, except in keeping it consistent. And if you're doing conversions back and forth using uh, formula, for instance, if you're doing like ideal gas law computations or things like this, it's helpful to use Celsius because it scales to Kelvin, and then Kelvin can be used in ideal gas laws and stuff. But if you're not doing that kind of stuff, it really doesn't make a, 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 you know, an iota of difference right that's chip. hey chip that's my thoughts um okay so uh before we leave because jack's gonna make us leave uh very soon uh giving a shout out because a listener wrote in uh sarah valentine from brooklyn but not from bushwick so probably not maybe not a hipster right hopefully anyway she wrote in saying wow. that uh <laughs> Wow, nuts. Well, there's also the Williamsburg hipster. What's worse, a Bushwick hipster or a Williamsburg hipster? Williamsburg. Whoa! Where do you live, Jack? I live in Bushwick. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So... Sarah Valentine writes in, friends with our, uh, you know, our longtime listener buddy, Ken Engber. And uh, Ken has gotten her and her husband into sous vide cooking. They bought the, uh, and low temperature cooking, bought the under pressure, etc. Maybe someday they'll buy We Pop Soupy Pots uh, uh, circulator. But uh, here we go. Said wants us to give a shout out. And this is our first actual shout out like this, right? A shout out for Ken Engber's birthday on July 2nd. Uh, before our next show, so this is Ken Ken Ingber's birthday shout out from Cooking Issues. See you next week. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. You got my head all twisted And I just can't get it straight